Welcome back to the Frozen Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. If you're new here, welcome. This is a podcast where we take a closer look at the history of the frontiers of the North American continent, specifically around the fur trade era between the 1500s and the 1840s. Today we're going to peer into the life of one of the toughest, most influential mountain men that you probably have never heard of. This guy was as skilled a fighter as Jim Bowie. He was skilled a guide as Jedediah Smith, and as skilled an interpreter as Jim Bridger. But if I asked you to name a famous mountain man, Thomas Fitzpatrick would most likely not be the first name that springs to your mind. So let's meet today's mountain man. Thomas Kieran Fitzpatrick was born in 1799 in County Cavan, Ireland, possibly in a small town named Kilachandra. His father's name seems to be lost to history, but we know his mother was Mary Kieran Fitzpatrick, and we know he had six or seven siblings. He was raised to be well-educated in a devoutly Catholic family, and little else is known about his childhood because his name doesn't appear to us again until 1815. It's at that point that 17-year-old Thomas immigrates to the new continent, supposedly jumping ship in New Orleans. He's described as a young man of medium stature, slight in build, but muscular, with a shock of sandy brown hair and a cool-headed demeanor. Now, our young Thomas likely had more than a little anxiety after the three-month voyage that brought him to this strange new world, but he was the kind of guy to get things done, and immediately he sets out to find work. No one is sure what employment exactly he found on his arrival. Perhaps he was a dockhand at the Port of New Orleans, where he hears about this lucrative fur trade happening up north. Or maybe he was witness to one of those hulking new steamboats chugging down the Mississippi River and out into the Gulf, laden down with its precious cargo of furs bound for Europe. We'll never know. What we can say for certain is that he worked his way up the Mississippi River, arriving in St. Louis, Missouri by 1822. And we know this because he answered an ad in a newspaper. You see, William Henry Ashley and Andrew Henry were just getting into the fur business, and they were looking for a hundred enterprising young men with really strong backs to work their trap lines. Well, young Thomas signs up. Now, granted, he's new to the trade, and he has much to learn, but he's level-headed, and he's extremely bright. He also quickly made new friends in two men named Jedediah Smith and Jim Bridger. These young men are all the same age. They have the same no-nonsense mentality, and they're all extremely driven. Besides all that, Thomas has that wonderful Irish trait of being stubbornly determined and eternally optimistic. So it's no surprise that when Ashley names his second expedition leader in 1823, he puts Jedediah Smith in charge, and Thomas Fitzpatrick becomes his right-hand man. Well, Thomas proves himself quickly. When the trappers come under attack by the Arakara Indians, he reacted with a cool head and he fought bravely. When Jed Smith called for the retreat, Thomas followed orders without hesitation, covering his fellow trappers' escape so they could make it to safety. Despite his heroic efforts, 12 men still lost their lives in that fight, and Thomas never forgot that. And I wonder how that affected our young trapper. Was this the first time he had faced death? In this line of work, it certainly would not be his only time. The Arakara were usually a friendly tribe, but they had run into serious problems with the trappers of the Missouri Fur Company some weeks earlier, and now they were of the mindset that one white man 
was just like all the rest. So as this was Thomas's first exposure to the indigenous people, it must have made an impact. Young Thomas, though, was proving to be quite an asset, and Ashley soon named him quartermaster. Ashley also gave Thomas his own crew to lead, and sent both Thomas's group and Jed Smith's group to the wild lands of Wyoming to search for favorable trapping grounds. The two parties arrived in the Wind River Valley of Wyoming just in time for winter, and they set up their camp there alongside with some friendly Crow Indians. Now, I've often wondered what Thomas must have felt like to be exposed to the native ways of living in harmony with the earth. His only native experiences up to this point were the vicious attack from the Arakara, and probably the occasional meeting of local bands as the trappers worked in the mountains. But those experiences wouldn't give him an appreciation for their culture. Whatever happened in the Wind River Valley that winter, it would change Thomas and would shape how he sees the natives. It would also make him one of the most influential native advocates of his time. So let's see how our intrepid young trappers are doing. Remember, it's the winter of 1823. Thomas is now 24 years old and is crew leader of one of the groups while Jed Smith is the leader of the other. By March, they're all ready to break up camp and get back to the mountains to set their new trap lines. They bid farewell to their crow companions and head to what will become Union Pass in present-day Wyoming. With him is his friend Jim Bridger. They find that the pass is completely filled with snow and they're unable to get through. So the whole group is forced back to the crow camp. The crow then tell them there's another pass to the south that will take them into the Green River Valley on the other side of the mountain range. So following these directions, Thomas and Jed Smith led their trappers through the South Wyoming Mountains into the Green River Valley at the soon-to-be-very-famous South Pass. This would someday become the eastern leg of the Oregon Trail. Now, we're going to take a minute here and debunk a myth. Jed Smith and Thomas Fitzpatrick are often credited with the South Pass's discovery, but they weren't the first Europeans here. John Jacob Astor's American Fur Company had been through years earlier. And to be honest, if we're giving credit where it's due, the natives were well aware of its location for generations before we even got here. But we'll give Thomas Bridger and Jed Smith credit for rediscovering the South Pass. So they've rediscovered the South Pass, and they've crossed into this beautiful Green River Valley, and they can't believe their eyes. Wildlife is ridiculously abundant, and the pristine landscape stretches as far as they can see. It must have looked like a utopian world to them. So the two groups now split up with the intention of regrouping in early June back at the current location, which happens to be the Sweetwater River in the center of Wyoming. Fitzpatrick's group heads east, and Jed's group goes west. As Thomas's group meanders to the southeast corner of Wyoming, they realize just how rich this land is, and quickly they are laden down with these prime furs. Well, when a group of hostile natives, probably Blackfeet, steal Thomas's horse, he starts to reconsider just how dangerous this area might be. Something that we need to stop here for a second and discuss is the Blackfeet. The Blackfeet aren't necessarily one tribe. It's a collection of the Circes, the Piagans, the Blood Indians, the Grovent of the Prairies. It's an amalgamation of all these small tribes, as well as actual Blackfoot Indians. 
So in many cases, you have small groups that are having issues with white folks, and they're banding together with other small groups having issues with white folks, and the only thing that humans love more than fighting each other is fighting a common enemy. So there were tribes that were friendly with the white men, and there were tribes that were hostile. Sometimes, first impressions were good, and the whites could trade openly with the indigenous people, but occasionally the whites unintentionally insulted or offended a tribe, or more often than not, threatened their well-being. For the most part, it wasn't intentional. It was simply short-sightedness. And to understand this a little better, I'll explain it in a different way. The First Nation peoples, or natives, or Indians, or whatever you grew up calling them, they all believe themselves to be the first people. So the Crow think they're the first people on the earth. The Blackfeet think they're the first people, and the Cheyenne know for certain they're the first people, and so on it goes. Now, 99.999% of these tribes did not believe they owned the earth. It didn't belong to them. They belonged to it. The earth was their mother. It was their provider. And the living creatures were their brothers and sisters. They live in harmony with all the creatures around them. So along comes the white man, and... He doesn't understand. He's like, hey there, Indian, who owns this awesome valley with all these fat beaver? And whatever indigenous tribe that's standing there would shrug and say, well, no one owns it. And the white man is like, well, great. I claim this land in the name of, insert your favorite country here. It wasn't an us versus them thing at this point. Not yet, anyway. It was a very self-centered, short-sighted European way of looking at it. And some of the tribes realized this was the issue, and they took great pains to educate the white trappers. Many of the trappers, either partially or wholeheartedly, embraced the native customs and beliefs. In fact, a good number of them married into the local tribes and raised families among them. Some even retired from the fur trade to live out their lives with their native relatives. But some tribes, and the Blackfeeter included, saw the bigger picture. Yes, these hundred or so trappers in this particular group probably won't destroy your way of life, but it's a pretty safe bet that once these hundred guys establish a base of operations, an unending flood of white folk were about to come pouring over the mountains and wash away everything they depended on to live, completely destroying their way of life. And they weren't wrong. So rather than educate the whites to their native ways, tribes like the Blackfeet made every effort to just get rid of these intruders and stop that flow of white folk before it even started. And I feel history's been really unkind in how it portrays certain tribes calling them hostile or aggressive or antagonistic. And let's put this another way. You let some strange guy come set up a tent on your front yard and claim it for his motherland, and you see how quickly you do something about it. That's where the Blackfeet were in their thinking. So anyways, it's likely that those horse thieves were Blackfeet, and they were doing it to get rid of the white folk. But this didn't stop our man Thomas. No, he wants his horse back. So he pursues this band of renegades, and he stole it back. On his ride back to the hunting party, he started thinking that maybe he'd better get this great big pile of furs back to the safety of the Sweetwater River, where Jed Smith would be waiting for him. As these trappers start making their way back to the meeting place, they're harried the whole way by hostile natives. 
but luckily for Thomas, they made it in time with the entire hall intact, just as Jed Smith and his party are coming into view. So once the two team leaders unite, they decide to get these furs to safety to the nearest fort, which at the time was Fort Atkinson, Kansas. Once there, they agreed they're going to send word to Ashley that they've struck the richest lands they've ever seen, and they're going to ask him to send more men and supplies. The trappers build three bull boats over the course of the next week, and they load up the furs, and Thomas and two other guys are tasked with getting these furs to Kansas and sending word to Ashley. Okay, so here we're going to have a lesson in navigation. Both natives and Europeans use canoes, usually either burned out of or carved out of a solid tree. There were also bark canoes used by certain natives, but all of those took a terribly long time to build, and they required some serious manpower and resources. There were rafts in use at this time, but they're notoriously unstable, and they tended to flip over if the weight was even slightly off balance or if the rapids got too rough. So a bull boat is what Scots and Irish historians would call a coracle. It's a round boat with a frame of lash branches that form a bowl, with the opening up at the top, like a cup. The frame is then covered with stretched hides, and the whole thing gets waterproofed with fats, oils, or pitch. So it's an easy thing to build in a pinch on the frontiers. It's fairly stable when it's loaded with something, and it's fairly maneuverable. The downside to a bull boat is they're completely round and they tend to spin in circles in the water, particularly in rough and choppy currents. So whoever was poling or paddling had to constantly rudder the boat back and forth or he'd find himself facing the wrong direction. I can imagine this was quite a physical undertaking. If you add to the fact that these rivers are completely untamed and have not yet been dredged, dammed, and altered by white civilization, well, I think you can see what's about to happen. Thomas and his two crewmen load these bull boats and head downriver to Kansas. They've each got a boat full of bales of fur and enough supplies to last until they get to their destination. The current starts getting rougher, and the boats start careening wildly, and before long, the first boat capsizes. The heavy fur bundles sink to the bottom of the river as the lighter containers of supplies are swept away. Now the poor man who had been paddling that boat now has to get himself out of harm's way while the other two boats have to not run over the guy as he flounders in the water. Before long, all three boats are capsized and all the furs are at the bottom of the river. Can you guess where all the lightweight bundles of supplies went? I'll give you a hint. They got to Kansas before our trappers did. Not to be discouraged though, Thomas and his cohorts drag these 100-pound bales out of the river and start setting them out to dry. We don't know for certain, but we can assume that besides the weight of the guy manning the boat, a bull boat could hold approximately 200 pounds or so. So that'd be about two bales of furs per boat. Three boats times two bales of furs equates a whole lot of drying time to salvage these furs. Now, if you're not familiar with furs, I'll give you a quick lesson. As I'm sure you're aware, particularly if you have pets, fur can get wet. No problem. That's not the issue. The problem is when they stay wet for a long period of time. When furs get wet, they must be dried immediately and completely. 
If they aren't, they will mold and they'll mildew and the hair will fall out, which is something we call slipping. So Thomas and his two crew members now have to spread these furs all across the prairie trying to get them dry. Once they're completely dry, they've got to be rebaled. But there's not enough time or manpower to do all this and build three new bull boats. There's also the issue that their supplies are beating them to Kansas, so they have nothing to live on. So the men decide they're going to cash the load, and they're going to make the long walk to Fort Atkinson unhindered by the weight of these bales. And here's another lesson for greenhorns. A cache is where you dig a hole, usually five or six feet deep, and you lay in a canvas or a hide with the fur side up. You put your precious cargo on top of that fur, and then you lay another canvas or another hide with the fur side down on top of it. And then you fill the hole with the dirt that you took out. The last step is to put a whole lot of effort into making it look like you've never been there. And these guys were masters at making caches. The trick is to make sure you can find it again. So these three men very smartly chose a spot with a unique prominent rock formation to cache their bales. And this is near what is today called Independence Rock in Wyoming. So with their stash safely stowed away, they start this long trip south. Keeping in mind, they have no supplies. If you were to walk this course today with the nice paved roads and the well-marked street signs and frequent rest stops, it would take you nine or ten days. So we can imagine that it took these guys at least two weeks with no supplies, and very likely their weapons had also been swept away. But they do it. They make it half-starving, near exhaustion, and they are warmly received at Fort Atkinson. Thomas Fitzpatrick immediately re-equips his men, sends word to Ashley explaining what happened. And he tells them of the richest beaver land he's ever seen, and he asks for more supplies and manpower. So they acquire horses and pack animals, and they go retrieve their cash. Ashley arrives in April of 1825, and Thomas again makes this trip north. This time he's guiding Ashley into these rich beaver lands known as the Green River Valley. The fur trade had been such a huge success for Ashley and Henry, but Henry at this point felt he was too old, so he had sold his share to the young Jedediah Smith the year before. As another year passes, Ashley's looking to pursue a career in politics, and he retires. So he sells his portion out to two other trappers named William Sublette and David Jackson. So our owners at this point are Jedediah Smith, William Sublette, and David Jackson. And the company is renamed. Now they're no longer Ashley's 100. They're the Smith, Sublette, and Jackson firm. Now, David Jackson hires our man, Thomas Fitzpatrick, to be his clerk. A clerk is a person responsible for all the accounting matters, including tracking what supplies trappers take out of the company coffers, uh, what items they purchase for their own use, how many furs each guy brings in, the resale value of those furs once they get back east. So Thomas would have shouldered this new responsibility from the field at the same time that he's working a trap line and scouting out new territory. I'm sure this gave him a new insight as to the lucrative benefits of being the company owner. So in 1830, when Smith, Sublette, and Jackson are now looking to retire, he and several other trappers buy out the company. And one of these other trappers is the famous mountain man, Jim Bridger, who renames the company the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. The new owners 
know that they need to cover a lot of ground with other fur companies moving into the area and competitions getting stiff, and they all start looking for extra ways to make money. And this is where our man Thomas gets rather crafty. Some people would say devious. In Joe Meek's journal for this year, it says that Thomas was once set up close to the camp of a Hudson's Bay Company man called Peter Skane Ogden, and he took advantage of the situation in a rather devious way. He apparently broke out a cask of whiskey and got the native trappers completely drunk, and he bought the furs right out from under Ogden's nose. On another occasion, he met up with some American fur company trappers, and he told them how sorry he was to hear that their company had gone out of business. Not hearing the news, the trappers were visibly disheartened since they were hauling many bundles of fur in. Thomas Fitzpatrick, out of the kindness of his heart, offered to buy the furs at a reduced rate, of course, so they didn't have to haul them around anymore, and he even invited the trappers to come join his company at the rendezvous. It was only later that the rival trappers found out that he had lied. For the next few years, Thomas worked deep in the Rocky Mountains and the surrounding areas, both as a trapper and as a scout. And we have several accounts from Mountain Men's journals that had encounters with him. For example, the trapper Zenis Leonard, he was working for a competing fur company and he met up with Thomas in 1831. He journals the following. Notwithstanding, we had treated him with great friendship and hospitality, merely because we were engaged in the same business with him, which he knew we could never exhaust or even impair. He refused to give us any information whatever and appeared to treat us as if we were intruders. Other accounts, also from competitors, depict him as being aloof and standoffish or wily and cunning, but by far my favorite account says Thomas and Jim Bridger were once out scouting in the wilds of Wyoming Territory and discovered they were being tailed by a competing company's scouts. So they nonchalantly lead these men into some terrible lands with an extremely low concentration of beaver, but a very high population of Blackfoot Indians. And then they just slipped out quietly while the competitor was forced to deal with the hostilities. Thomas gained a bit of a reputation as being a tough cookie when it comes to playing well with others, but he was a businessman after all. I think we can forgive him for trying to protect his assets. So in 1832, Thomas is scouting ahead for his party's pack train while the trappers prepare to head for the rendezvous point in Pierre's Hole, which is in present-day Idaho. He suddenly finds himself under attack by the Grovement natives, and he tears off into the mountains with these screaming band of natives in hot pursuit. So he ditches his horse, and he presses himself into a narrow crevice, blocking up the space with leaves and sticks. And he's hiding there. The natives found his horse, but they couldn't find him. Figuring he'd come back for his animal, they set up camp within spitting distance from his hiding spot. So for several days... He remains standing stock still in this crevice, with everything he owns clutched to his chest. Realizing that the natives aren't going to leave anytime soon, he takes a chance and he slips out one night. He left his horse there, and carrying only what he had in his hands at the time, he gave these natives a wide berth and headed in the direction of Pierre's Hole. Using the mountains and the stars as orienteering points, he eventually came to the Snake River. He knew he was in no shape to swim the raging waters, so he builds a small raft and attempts to pole his way across. 
the raft was swept sideways in the torrent and smashed on the rocks midstream, and everything he owned, including his weapons and his clothing, were swept away. So he spends the next week struggling to find food. He's living on roots and berries, all the while keeping himself pointed towards that rendezvous point. As if he wasn't in dire enough straits, a wolf pet comes upon him and treed him and kept him there for several days while they devoured their recent buffalo kill. When the wolves finally departed, he drops to the ground and resumes his journey, moving ever closer to Pierre's hole. Now the trials on his body and his gear were starting to show. His moccasins fell to pieces, but he kept walking, and his feet were getting cut up, so he was forced to cut up his hat and wrap his bleeding feet, but he never stopped. When the search party finally found him, he was within miles of Pierre's hole. He was gaunt and emaciated, and his eyes had sunken in. His cheekbones protruded like a skeleton wrapped in skin. Most remarkably, at the age of 33, in less than one month's time, his hair had turned completely white. The journals of the mountain men who attended that rendezvous tell us that a great celebration was held that night. That is, once they were sure he wasn't going to die. Our man Thomas wasn't one to stay down long. He soon returned to the mountains and to the trails where he loved to trap. And during the winter of 1833 and the spring of 1834, he and Bridger spent the months exploring the southwest of present-day Arizona and New Mexico. They trapped their way back home to arrive at the 1834 rendezvous in time. At some time during this trek, Fitzpatrick and Bridger would separate. They would part ways to work independent trap lines and then meet up again a few days later. And it's on one of these trapping excursions that Thomas again finds himself being pursued by Blackfeet. He drove his horse hard, trying to outrun his pursuers, and it appeared he was going to make it. He was going to escape. Then the horse lunged headlong off an embankment, and Thomas was thrown into the rocks within the river. But he jumps up unharmed. Unfortunately, the horse was dead. So he knew at this point he had no choice. He had to make a stand. As he pulled the buckskin cover off of his rifle, the weapon discharged, mangling his left hand and blowing two of his fingers clear off. With the blood flowing freely down his arm, he reloads his rifle and drew up on his pursuers. He fired it once and killed the closest native to him and the one riding on a different horse behind him. So as you can imagine, the others decided not to trifle with this guy anymore, and they turned and ran. But from this day forward, Thomas Fitzpatrick would be known to the natives as Broken Hand. Now after the 1835 rendezvous, Thomas took his portion of the profits and he bought himself a new home. And it's called Fort Laramie in Wyoming. He hired himself out as an independent guide for a group named the Whitman Missionaries, bound for the West Coast. And he was the first man to guide a group on the famous Oregon Trail. He found that this life suited him. But by 1836, Thomas Fitzpatrick was ready to get out of the first business altogether. The fur trade itself had been in decline, partially because of the change in demand and partially because of the depletion of the beaver populations. He and his business partners sold their stocks to the American Fur Company, and Thomas turned to guiding pioneers through the Rocky Mountains full-time. And he was good at it, so good at it that the U.S. government hired him as an official guide. In 1841, he was contracted to act as the guide for Father Pierre de Smet, 
and he became the first one to guide the California trails. Interestingly, in 1842, Thomas was robbed by a band of Pawnee Indians and relieved of his goods, and we actually have a letter that he wrote to his superiors asking for reimbursement. Uh, he puts that his gun was a uh, one double barreled and twist gun for $50 and a spyglass for 25 And he lists all of the things that were taken from him, including his three shirts at $3.50 apiece. Now, in 1843, he's contracted again, this time to lead John C. Fremont's expedition into California. And in 1845, he again finds himself in the Rockies guiding General Stephen Watts Kearney's Army of the West. And he went on multiple trips through the region that would soon become Mexico. So after 10 years of the trap line, plus another 10 years in the saddle as the guide, plus being chased, robbed, stabbed, shot at, treed, stalked, and starved, as well as 20 years of slinging heavy fur bales and sleeping on the cold hard ground at night, one could understand why Thomas would start looking for a desk job. So in 1846, at the ripe old age of 47, Thomas was named as the Indian agent of the territory we now know as Colorado. He had already earned a great reputation as being fair and honest with the natives, and many tribes described him as the one fair agent. He had great respect for the natives, and they respected him immensely. And his opinions are recorded in several documents of the day, but I'll give you a synopsis here. He believed that the native peoples and the white settlers could live in harmony. He also believed that the natives should be paid fairly for the land that the whites wanted as well as for the buffalo that the whites were indiscriminately killing for their tongues and hides. He believed the natives should be taught skills that would help them live with the whites, like farming. But the government should also provide aid for those who were affected by the intrusion of these white pioneers, including these depleted buffalo herds. And he believed it was the white man's obligation to be tolerant and to understand the native cultures and beliefs. They were here first after all, and while he did support the concept of manifest destiny, he believed there was a way for both sides to win, and he was determined to find it. Well, with that said, he also believed that any of the warlike tribes should be punished, though he never really elaborates what those punishments were. And like all things, Thomas Fitzpatrick didn't do things halfway. He was going to make sure that everyone had a say in the matter, and he begins drafting out plans for this ultimate treaty in 1846. Then in 1849, at the age of 51, something incredible happens. Thomas fell in love. His sweetheart was the 17-year-old Margaret Poisel, and she was the daughter of a French trapper trader named John Poisel and his snake Indian wife probably named Maham. We're not sure. Well, young Margaret's uncle, which would be her mother's brother, was an Arapaho chief named Niwat that Thomas had had great relations with up to this point. So I can imagine that having a snake Indian woman for a mother-in-law and an Arapaho chief for an uncle-in-law would certainly have increased Thomas's respectability with the Plains tribes. So the marriage is blessed by the chiefs, and the two are wed, and they divide their time between Bent's Fort and Fort Laramie. At some point this year, they also bought a house in Westport, which is present-day Kansas City, Missouri, on the southeast corner of Broadway and Westport Roads. 
Now, in 1849, Thomas and Margaret welcomed their first child, a boy that they named Andrew Jackson Fitzpatrick. But something else arrived in 1849. Cholera. Though the true root of it is uncertain, it's generally believed that immigrant ships brought the disease to the shores of the new country. In the East, thousands of people began dying of cholera in New York. 4,500 died in St. Louis alone, while another 3,000 died of it in New Orleans. In Mexico, 200,000 people fell victim to the scourge. And when the people started freaking out and trying to get out of the East, almost 12,000 people flooded over the Allegheny Mountains, bringing the disease west of the Alleghenies for the first time. And it spread across the plains like a prairie fire on a scorching summer day. The natives began to fall by the thousands. And by the end of the epidemic, almost two-thirds of the entire Cheyenne nation was dead. Thomas wrote many, many letters back to the East to his superiors in Washington, D.C., and he bemoaned the devastating effect that the disease was having on the native populations. He begged the government to stem the flow of settlers until the epidemic was under control. He described the tribe's destitution and their desperate situation. If a response was ever made, there's no record of it. But it seems like the worst of the cholera outbreak was over by the year 1850. Over the course of that year, Thomas's hard work begins to bear fruit. He planned to convene a council of the tribe's elders, and he called it the Fort Laramie Conference. He sent out invitations and began producing the final copy of what his proposed treaty would be. Now, it's been five years in the making, but his plan is finally starting to come together. And in this treaty, he planned out land reservations and borders that would be assigned to each tribe, as long as they lived peacefully with the whites and with each other. He also spelled out the boundaries that the white man would be held to. He laid out the reparations the government would pay for the lost buffalo. Do you remember that scene in Dances with Wolves where Kevin Costner and his Lakota friends are horrified and distraught at these hulks of skinned, wasted, dead buffalo scattered across the plains? That right there, that really happened. And that's what Thomas Fitzpatrick was trying to pay for. He wrote up the treaty to have $50,000 paid annually for the next 50 years as restitution. This would equate to about a million dollars a year in today's money. He also laid out the groundwork for U.S. forts and trading posts and roads that would connect the tribes to each other as well as to the white trading posts. More importantly, he pledged that the U.S. government would protect the natives from hostilities of the whites and even spelled out the restitution that would be paid if any native would suffer injury. He spelled out the punishments the natives would receive if they attacked the whites or each other. So in 1851, the ink is dry on this masterpiece, and he called the tribes to gather to sign the final treaty at Fort Laramie. And I wonder if he stood in the doorway and watched as these tribes came in setting up their teepees in the field next to the fort. I, I envision him calling out to his wife saying, Oh, look, Margaret, the Cheyenne are here, and there's the Arapaho, and the Crow, and, uh... Where am I going to put all these people? Because at first it was the Cheyenne and the Arapaho and the Crow, and then the Assiniboine and the Arakura and the Mandan and the Snake, the Hidatsa and the Gros Vent, the Brule Sioux, the Minicandre Sioux, the Oglala Sioux, 
And then the Shoshone show up, who weren't even invited, and would have had to have traveled 400 miles just to get there, but they showed up anyways. That's how seriously these tribes were taking this discussion. The delegates just kept on coming. More and more and more teepees were erected until the entire surrounding landscape was covered in lodges. Estimates vary on how many were in attendance. Conservative numbers say around 10,000. Some estimates are as high as 60,000 people came to this conference. In fact, there were so many native delegations camped around Fort Laramie that the entire affair had to be moved further downstream to the larger plains around Horse Creek. This would be on the North Platte River in the southeastern corner of present-day Wyoming. And this is why the treaty is sometimes referred to as the Horse Creek Treaty. Remember, many of these tribes have been at war with each other for generations. And now, these age-old enemies were camped in the same field. Albeit, probably with a healthy distance between them, no doubt. But they showed up. Now, some of the invitees did not show, including the Apache the Kiowa, the Blackfeet, and the Comanche. But most of the delegations did come, and it must have been an awe-inspiring sight. Thomas honored the tribes with all of the gifts and ceremonies and customs, as was their traditions. The tribes honored him in kind, and when the delegations each spoke their minds, he listened respectfully, and he heard their words, and they heard his. This was the largest conference of the Plains tribes ever Held, and it still today holds the record. Nothing in the last 167 years since has even come close to these numbers. And with the exception of those few tribes who did not attend, they all put aside decades of conflict and hatred and warfare. They all signed the treaty. He had done it. Thomas Fitzpatrick had brought together this massive group of First Nations people, and had brokered peace for both the natives and the whites. Unfortunately, that was the easy part. Because while the cholera might have stopped streaming east in 1850, the settlers kept coming. And in an 1853 letter to his superiors, he begged the government to adhere to this treaty. He lamented how the government's refusal to uphold its promises was devastating these natives. In his own words, he says, they are in abject want of food half the year. Their women are pinched with want, and their children constantly crying out with hunger. But his pleas fell on deaf ears. It's believed that during the year 1853, 15,000 Americans moved through Fort Laramie, destroying the game and bringing their diseases to the Indians. Trade relations were disrupted, and the whites began to claim land that wasn't theirs to claim. And no one cared about Thomas Fitzpatrick's masterpiece of a treaty. Disgusted with all the ineptitude of his superiors and the blatant lack of compassion from the D.C. fat cats, Thomas finally had enough. In 1854, he kissed his young son and his heavily pregnant wife, Margaret, and headed to Washington, D.C. to roll heads in person. The first fight was with Congress, and he lost. Instead of the promised... $50,000 a year for 50 years, they cut it down to $10,000 a year for 10 years. And they generally didn't give a crap what line he had laid out to protect the native grounds. They had too many pioneers screaming for land grants, and they needed land to give away. In fact, of those 10 promised payments, they paid one. 
And they didn't really care how many of those dumb savages died of starvation because they couldn't see it from their house. It was a disgusting attitude to take and a terrible defeat for the natives, and Thomas took it very personally. But there was a second fight that Thomas was about to undertake, a fight with pneumonia. Sadly, he lost that battle too, and he died in Washington, D.C. on February 7, 1854. They buried him in the Congressional Cemetery and erected a simple headstone bearing his name and the words, U.S. Indian Agent. But he was so much more than this. Back at Fort Laramie, Virginia Thomasina Fitzpatrick would be born, but Thomas would never know. Nor would he know how quickly his hard-won peace was disintegrating. The whites continued to stream into the preserved native territories, staking out homesteads on land they weren't supposed to be taking. Small disagreements were quickly being blown out of proportion. Fights would follow, and then raiding parties would be issued from both sides. In one horrific case, a dispute breaks out between a band of Minikanju Sioux and a Mormon traveling party. A Mormon's cow is killed by a Minikanju arrow. A lieutenant by the name of Grattan and 29 of his men retaliate by turning howitzers against a completely different group of Minikanju and Brule Sioux. The surviving Sioux warriors now retaliate and kill all of the 30 soldiers, including Grattan. It's said that they each took turns shooting arrows into the man's body in revenge, and he was so full of arrow shafts that you could no longer tell he was a man underneath it all. War was declared on the whites, because the only good white man is a dead white man. In retaliation for this barbaric act, a colonel named Harney leads 600 soldiers against a completely unrelated Brule village, killing 86 of the women and children huddled there together. War is declared on the natives, because the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And this, this despicable massacre is witnessed by a 14-year-old Lakota boy named Among the Trees, who silently vows to have his revenge. And for the next 20 years, this boy's heart would yearn for the day he made the U.S. government pay. And in 1876, at the Battle of Little Bighorn, he would have just that. His common name? Crazy Horse. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I always found Thomas Fitzpatrick to be one of the unsung heroes of the West. And apparently I'm not the only one, because in 2004, he was inducted into the Hall of Great Westerners of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. I encourage you to check out the website at furzenfrontiers.com for photos and links and more information on Thomas Fitzpatrick. I thank you all for listening. Come back in a few weeks for the next episode. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Mm -hmm.